You are listening to Welcome to the Other Side, and I'm your host, Meg Gluckman. This podcast is designed for moms after divorce. It's all about how you can move on from your divorce, how to co-parent without drama, and even how to start dating again when you're ready and have fun with it. I'll bring lots of tips and tricks and strategies for you to use every day. And I'll bring on some experts to share their wisdom on how you can create that juicy, rich, lush life post-divorce that you really want. You are not alone on your journey. There's so much we can share together. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Meg Gluckman, and I have a special guest with me today that I get to pick her brain about all things ADHD and neurodiversity. Sean Rooney is here. Hi, Sean. Hi. I'm so glad to have you. Um, Sean and I crossed paths in uh, some different coaching programs in the past couple of years, and she specializes in coaching folks with ADHD. And I'm seeing more and more adults, uh, more and more of my clients starting to identify as having ADHD tendencies. And I was like, well, we got to learn more about this, um, help folks out. So I wanted to have Sean come on so that we can uh, dive deep into what is ADHD, how does it show up, especially for the moms in my audience, how it might be showing up and, um, you know, what we can learn to make our lives easier if we do have some of these ADHD tendencies. Sean, will you start us with um, your story of figuring out your ADHD tendencies? Sure. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much also for having me. I'm super excited to talk about this. So my journey with ADHD began uh, when I was about 40. I was actually looking into what was going on with my son. So he was having some challenges in school. Uh, it was about that middle school period of time. And he was in a really large large school, lots of children, um, an environment that wasn't conducive to like focus and the type of attention I felt like he needed. So we transitioned him to a smaller school. There were still some challenges I was noticing. And so as I was looking into what was going on with him and talking to his pediatrician and going down the path of getting an assessment done, I started noticing that many of the ways that my son described his brain and the things that were going on for him were challenges that I in fact had. I had just figured out kind of quirky workarounds or I had managed to just fly a little bit under the radar in the behavior category, I think when I was a child. And so I decided to look into my own diagnosis. And so at the age of like 41, I was diagnosed with inattentive ADHD. We can talk a little bit more about the three types. Um, but it was really eye-opening. And I think in some ways I felt relief because it was like, mm -hmm. oh, so much just clicked into place and made sense. I also felt a little stressed. Like, what does this mean now? Like, do I have to change everything? Um, so that's, that's a little bit of how I, I discovered ADHD. Ultimately, what I ended up doing was working with a coach. So I hired my first coach back before coaching was really even a thing. 
She was an ADHD coach. Her name is Lori Dupar. I loved working with her. Um, and really what I gained from that experience was just seeing myself in a new light. Uh, my, the way my brain worked was normalized. I felt seen and heard and received and supported. Yeah, which is exactly what we want for all of our kids, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. That just warms my heart. Do you remember, can you go back to that time? What, what were some of the first things that kind of got normalized for you or that you suddenly realized like, oh, this, this is how I function and it's okay that I function this way? Yes. Um, it was, it was also subtle, but I think my tendency to um, be interested in a lot of different things have varying interests, a lot of hobbies, and not necessarily stay committed to and in the lane of one. Um, a lot of interest. I was a serial entrepreneur. I've had like nine businesses. And every time I'd run into like friends in the grocery store, they would be like, what are you up to now? You're always doing something different and unique. And I, that would always strike me as, am I? Like, isn't this just what everybody does? I just think I had a complete lack of awareness. Um, and so it started to make sense. My multi-interests, I would say my slipperiness with time, like I worked really hard to be on time. It was really instilled in me, like punctuality was important and I didn't realize how much I struggled with it. So I would go to the extreme. If I had say a doctor's appointment, I would get there sometimes an hour to 45 minutes early to make sure that I wasn't late because I didn't trust myself with just the natural flow of time job interviews, I would get there like an hour early and like kill some time in the car because I really wanted to not be late. And I, and time was so slippery. It was so hard to um, properly like assess how long it would take me to do something or to get somewhere. It's so great now, the apps that account for traffic. And <laughs> I was trying to do all of that without the apps, right? So I'm like, it's a 15 minute drive. And I would completely forget all of the things that might come up in between like red lights. <laughs> so I would always look at best case scenario, like on a best case scenario, I can get there in 15 minutes versus the lens of it's probably going to take 30 because I need to account for all these other factors that really taps into what's called our executive function. Um, and when when you are a person who has ADHD tendencies or are diagnosed with ADHD, there are some challenges that are associated with our executive function part of our brain. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to just that little bit about, does it matter if you're diagnosed with ADHD versus just figuring out that you have the tendencies? Is there, is there a reason why folks should get diagnosed? That's such a good question. And I have thoughts about it. So I'm going to give you like my thoughts about it. I also yeah. want to preface, I'm not a doctor. And so this is all personal experience and I am a coach, but uh, medically ADHD is a diagnosable condition and the way it is treated, the number one way it is treated is with medication and it's diagnosed by a prescriber or your doctor um, and then it's also suggested, like studies have shown, along with medication, therapy, treatment, um, coaching, anything along the lines of like a cognitive behavioral type of support is really helpful, can be really helpful. So it's kind of a two-pronged approach. So I think if someone is 
struggling, and I'm going to speak as an adult first, like as a parent, if someone is struggling with what they feel like are ADHD tendencies, it's important to know you don't really have a pulse on what typical is. What you tend to know is your own experience. And that was a real hurdle for me. Like, how do I even know what normal is? So if you find yourself spinning, I do think there's so much value in talking to your doctor about it and having an assessment. It's like a baseline tool. It's a baseline thing that you can do to help bring clarity. You also always get to decide how you want to proceed. So whether you're diagnosed or not, you're going to have thoughts about it. You would be excellent at coaching someone around that, right? It's like, it's just um, data. And then you also get to decide if you want to uh, agree to the treatment plan that they suggest or not. Like you, you get to decide always. So in my opinion, a diagnosis is just data and information that might provide some context. And I think it is really important. Otherwise, I think you can spin with challenges unaware of how difficult things really are for you. Mm -hmm. So that's like the long answer to like, yes, I think it can be important to pursue a diagnosis at the right time. I don't think it's necessary or required in order to uh, get help or look about, think about it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess the, the bottom line is, if you resonate with some of the tendencies and we'll talk more about them, then, and you're, and you find yourself really struggling and, and life feels heavy and hard and, you know, and you want something different. That's when to move down this path and look into getting assessed and so forth. Like it's, it's to improve your life. Essentially, that would be the reason to do it. Right. Yeah. To improve how you feel in your life. Exactly. There's a spectrum of tendencies, right? So you will hear people often say, isn't everybody a little bit ADHD? That's kind of a, you know, a statement that's been made. And the answer to that is as no, like everybody does not have ADHD. Everybody is not even a little bit ADHD, but do people all have ADHD tendencies? Yes. Like Mm. it is just part of the human condition to have some of these tendencies, but that doesn't mean that everyone has ADHD. In fact, it really does a disservice and diminishes the experience of ADHD for those people who find it extremely challenging to function on a day-to-day basis. Um, And so there's, that's where the difference is, right? There's this scale of like, oh, it's really hard to function. This is how these tendencies are impacting me. Versus it's a little bit annoying. I'm slightly forgetful. I can have a tendency to hyper-focus at times, but it's not impacting my day-to-day life. Totally different thing. Yes. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that's super helpful. Can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned the three types of ADHD. Can you go into kind of what those are for us? Yep. So currently in the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual that's used, the first type is hyperactive uh, impulsive. So you're going to see more of the hyperactivity, more of the impulsivity, the tendency to not pause, to react. Um, It's outer hyperactivity also. So you'll see like the constant tapping foot or Imagine, you know, the child in the classroom who can't keep their hands off of the child in front of them or kicking the desk. It's kind of like you can see visibly that hyperactivity. That's type one, hyperactive, impulsive. Type two is inattentive. 
This is more the daydreamy child who's just like off in their own imagination during class. They have a hard time listening to the teacher. In fact, the teacher's voice might sound a little bit like the Charlie Brown teacher. It's like, wah, wah, wah. And they're just kind of in their own place. They're thinking of all the things they could be doing. They often are great storytellers, really creative. Um, but the ability to listen and pay attention to something that is not interesting to them is extremely challenging. So for someone with inattentive type, you're gonna see much more of that behavior versus the hyperactive impulsive. I will also say there can be an inner hyperactivity for, in, for the inattentive type. So it's less outward, you don't see it, but it doesn't mean it's not experienced on the inside. And often what that feels like is anxiety. So someone with inattentive ADHD, their experience, I will say it was probably my experience, it feels like general anxiety disorder. There's just this constant kind of um, almost agitation or discomfort. And mm -hmm. it's really hyperactivity, but it's focused inward. It can also be thinking, like hyperactive in our brain, in our mind, overthinking. And then combined type is exactly what it sounds like. It's just a little bit of both. So you get all of it. You get the hyperactivity, the impulsivity, and the the inattentiveness combined. Yeah. Okay. The surf and turf. You get surf both. and turf. Yeah. It's just like mix it all up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So I appreciate you giving the examples too of what we often notice or what's pointed out to us when we're diagnosing or when kids have been diagnosed and what it looks like. How does it look different for kids versus women, you know, folks who have been socialized as women when they're adults or folks that have been socialized as men? Like what's, what's different about how it might manifest or show up? Socialized as women, I think it's like uh, seen but not heard, mm -hmm. stay quieter, like don't be the loud person in the room. I think being taught these behaviors kind of plays right into inattentive type. And so the line becomes blurry. Like, have I been socialized to be this way or is there something going on? And I just wasn't diagnosed. And the way a prescriber or a doctor will look at that is how long has this been happening? So they really are looking at some preconditioning back into childhood. Did you have these um, symptoms, experiences, tendencies all the way through childhood or is it a recent occurrence? Has it just kind of appeared in adulthood? I think... It's funny for men, and I'm talking like men now, there is a little bit of boys will be boys and like they're going to be a little louder and more rambunctious and like, what are you going to do about it? And I do think that has translated into corporate spaces where being louder and bolder and like vocalizing needs and wants in some ways has really worked. So I do think there is a component of socializing for sure that comes into play. I still think. Like if you talk to someone who has ADHD, whether they're diagnosed or not, their experience of it is really going to be telling as to whether it's an actual condition that needs a diagnosis or it's thoughts, beliefs that they've been socialized into and the behaviors are kind of an outcome of that. Is that making sense? Like I think there's not really a way to know the impact on one's life unless you actually talk to that person and they they share the impact on their life. Yeah. Okay. So the way that I'm hearing that is you might have two people that 
behave similarly out in the world. And one person is going to be internalizing or dealing with internal stuff in one way and the other person in a very different way. And it's that kind of like internal environment that defines whether there's ADHD present or not. Yes. And I do think there's a bit of an overlap in that Venn diagram, right? So there's a section of those two circles, whether it's diagnosed ADHD or whether it's socialized, there's going to be behaviors that there's this area of Mm -hmm. overlap and absolutely thought work coaching can help. That is why it's part of a treatment plan for someone diagnosed. You can like look at your thoughts about the ADHD, the behaviors and think about it differently When you are looking at an actual diagnosis, there might be more support that's needed in addition to that. And Mm -hmm. I think it can be almost, it can be harmful for a person to believe they should be able to think their their way out of something that is possibly biological, chemical. Um, I think that's a trap that you need to be really careful of and aware of. Yes. Thank you. So for I think it's important that. why the diagnosis start. You start with a diagnosis and then the rest can be supportive. I can I will also say I've had clients who started with coaching because it felt more accessible and they weren't actually ready yet to move towards the diagnosis. And ultimately a lot of many of them choose to go ahead and and pro, like move forward with a diagnosis because they feel like they have that safety support network behind them. Uh-huh. So there's not a right way to do it. Uh-huh. But I think uh, both are important. Yeah. Can you speak to, and if, if, if we don't want to go down this path, we don't have to at all, but a little bit of like, what is chemically going on or biologically different that, that medication helps with versus neurotypical, or I, I don't even know what the best term is for, not, for a non-ADHD brain. We'll just say non-ADHD. Yeah. 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 And neurotypical is like one of the terms. So totally it's, it's a fluid language, so it's always changing. So I don't think there's a right way to say it, but yes. Um, I'm, I'll scratch the surface again. I'm not a doctor. I do have a lot of knowledge personally, but I, I will leave that to the experts, but it has to do often with brain chemicals. So norepinephrine, dopamine are, um, some of the primary ones, serotonin, Sometimes it has to do with the amount that's being produced is like more than or less than what you would find in a typical, more typical neurotypical brain. Um, Sometimes it has to do with what's called like the reuptake system. So the cells, maybe there's enough being produced, but the the part of the cell that kind of takes that in and processes it there's maybe something going on with that. And so it's ability to kind of take it in and use it to the maximum effect. Um, And I'm just going to say different effect. I think because my lens is so, so around differing abilities. So it's funny. I'm like, I feel myself kind of cautiously tiptoeing around the language. There is evidence that different, that chemicals are processed in different ways. And so some of the medications, what they do is they stimulate the production of more of those chemicals. Some of the medications uh, help carry the chemicals from one place to another and others kind of reduce the chemicals of other. It's very nuanced. I think when it comes to parenting, 
I used to coach children. So I, I coached seven to 70 was the age range. So I did coach a number of children before I started focusing on women. A question that would come up from parents often around medication is just like a fear around it, a fear around Adderall, a fear around kind of the, the, the well-known medications that they are some type of like methamphetamine and I'm going to get my kids hooked on drugs and that seems really, really dangerous. So I would, I mean, I would like to speak to that just for a second because I think it's really important. First of all, not the same thing. So when pharmaceuticals are created, the compounds that are used and the way they're put together is uh, clinically done. So with so much caution, right? We also know that there are side effects with all medications. So we like kind of solve one problem and it causes some other ones sometimes. Most commonly with ADHD medications, it's like loss of appetite or, um, so it's kind of a constant at what cost? Like what is the support we get and what are the drawbacks is what you're always looking at. If you're looking at like comparing a methamphetamine to an ADHD drug, I'm just gonna give this image because it stuck with me when I, a doctor was telling me about it. In the case of methamphetamine, so much of this drug is like ingested that it basically goes in and blows off the ends of the kind of the, I'm using non-scientific language, the reuptake mm-hmm. areas so that yeah. it's completely open and so much of that drug can flood in there. In yeah. the case of like a targeted ADHD medication, that's not the case. Like there's no blowing up of anything. Nothing's compromised. It's like, just like a transport system. It's attaching to this and it's bringing it up to that. So they are I wish you wildly all could see different. Her hand. I wish you all could see Sorry. Sean's hand movements because she's really, she's really being the brain and it's very helpful to me. So I'm sorry, I forget that's not visual. No, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I think, I think the way that you're describing it is super helpful. So I think folks will get it. Yeah. So sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. That's, that's it for the visual there. So they are very, very different, but they are very different. It's not the same. You are not giving your child street drugs. There is no version of that happening. Um, two other interesting things with that. Often when I was coaching children at the end of our, I would do 12 weeks with them at the end of our time together, just like I would ask adults, I would ask them, what was, what did they find most helpful? What did they like about our, our time together? And they would say, just that you get me, like you understand and you hear what I'm saying in a way that they didn't feel that was happening. And often what we would work on in the beginning of our sessions, the beginning of our time together, they would say their goal, the result that they wanted to create was to get off their ADHD medication. And I'm going to be super candid about that because it's just honest. It's not because it was um, horrible for them or because but it was because of those side effects that, that weren't fantastic. Like sometimes it made them a little tired in the afternoon. Sometimes they weren't as hungry at lunchtime and they acknowledged that and they didn't love it. But when I would talk with them, most of them would choose to still take the medication, even though it makes them a little less hungry, than not take it. And I found that interesting. So they would often share with me, they noticed the difference and it felt better for them, mm-hmm. which was just something that I, I really paid attention to and uh-huh. noted. I think parents were often fearful about that. I get it. But the feedback directly from children mm-hmm. was that it felt helpful to them. I think another thing that happens is their brains continue to develop until at least 25 
when it comes to ADHD, it even sometimes we say 30. Um, it really depends on the individual. But I think as children get older and once their brains are done developing, as adults, we can step a little more into our thought management and our, and so I think it can sometimes act as a bridge until a child is able to decide what's in their own best interest. Second point with children. I have one more, if that's okay. Please. This is it's awesome. like the three things around kids that came out that I'm like, okay. I've also coached a number of men as well as women, but I will say the men said this most often. Um, they did not, and we're talking men that are like close to my age. So in their forties, fifties, they were not treated with medication because of the time period. It wasn't as common. Their parents were very cautious about the label and about putting them on medication. So they did not. What ended up happening for many of them is they did what's called self-medicating. And so as they got into junior high, high school, it's like if you're a teen or a tween and you can tell something's not quite right and you're not actually getting support for that, they will sometimes find a way to try to help calm their brain down, whether it's alcohol, whether it's hot, whether it's, right? And so for many of them, that just became kind of the natural course. And so rather than struggling with the effects of medication as a child, they ended up actually needing to move through and navigate addiction, recovery, um, self-medicating as an adult. And so I think as parents, we can often have the, the thought or the belief, like, I don't want to put them on something that might get them addicted to something, right? But I also want to offer the thought <clears throat> by not offering that support as a child, it, it doesn't guarantee anything. In fact, it can potentially lead to them self-medicating, which I've been told is often a much harder path, right? To come to go through. Um, yeah. So it's kind of like a multi-thought approach around medication. I just hope it's enough maybe that people are open to researching. Mm -hmm. Every every case is different. Yeah. And I think that's that's a great point to just emphasize. Like our conversation here is just meant to to spark curiosity or spark um, the possibility that maybe there's something that I want to look into and and then everybody's invited to go down their own Google rabbit hole or talk to their um, providers to, to find out more. I want to circle back to, to you mentioning that possibly like our parents' generation or even our generation are hesitant to, um, to get kids diagnosed sometimes because of the label or even to get ourselves diagnosed because of then being labeled as having ADHD. Do you feel like that's shifting now or do you feel like there's still some negative connotation to it? What's your sense of it? Yeah, I do think it's shifting a little bit. I think people are being more open and honest about it. There's more conversation happening for sure. We have really kind of focused on the um, diagnosis treatment side of things. I think the flip side of that coin, which is really where I tend to come from, is differing abilities. And so the strengths, the things that come with a neurodivergent brain, the wild creativity, the ability to think outside of the box, 
Um, the risk taking that maybe isn't fantastic when you're the mom of a 10 year old boy who's wanting to jump off walls that are way too high or something. Right. But like that same risk taking can really serve uh, an entrepreneur who's like going into business for themselves or so I think, um, oh, there's more of an embracing of the differences, but I think there needs to actually be even more. I also, I think with parents, my, my background before coaching was I was a child development major and a preschool director for like 15 years. So children are kind of my heart. I've really always loved working with children. I think we can always circle back to environment. And up until about the age of seven, for sure, I would say we can always turn the question back and like, how is this environment supporting them or not? And what can I do to shift the environment to help meet their needs? Um, after that, of course, we're going to start to learn, you know, rules and boundaries and all of the things, but perception plays a huge role. And so what is your thought about how your child should or shouldn't be behaving and how much of that can be influenced by the way you adjust their environment? I think, I think honestly, there's a trickle down effect. We have not done a fantastic job in the U.S. of supporting early childhood education, uh, the learning system hasn't done a fantastic job of supporting neurodivergent thinkers and learners. As a like former teacher, educational person, I'm not pointing the finger or blame at, right? I, teachers work very hard and yet the systems just are not doing a supportive enough job to meet like all different varying brain types. Yeah, well, and this this gets to kind of like one of those big questions that I have in my brain when you talk about environment and and really how how much of this would be a problem or would be a struggle or a challenge for ADHD brains if it weren't for the other systems that are at play for the patriarchy for white supremacy right these these ideas that there is a right way to do something and to be and we're we're kind of conditioned to to show up in that particular way right? There's clearly like good and bad. I mean, I'm doing quotes, right? But like good kids, bad kids, like good professional, bad professional, like showing up in these different ways. And if we didn't have um, such a sense of that, would it be, you know, more so more supportive, more welcoming of the diversity of brains that we have out here? It's a great question. I think about it a lot. It's like one of my areas that I go to and I'm just imagining a different world and a different way of being. I think we have a lot of societal beliefs, collective beliefs that we've carried for a really long time around how children should be, that they should listen, that they should pay attention, that they should do what they're asked, that they should be agreeable, that they should not talk back, that they should. And I think so many of these constraints were put into place because the adults are being constrained and they're like, I have to get to work. I yeah. have, we only have X amount of time. I need you to do this. Uh -huh. And the expectation is too great for the child. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I believe the expectation is often too great for the parent, the single yeah. mom, the single dad, the, like all the things. And I do think that all points to systemic issues. Like the support just isn't in place. So we get kind of trapped as a cog in the system. And I think it impacts ultimately children 
So part of my flipping the script is also like if we really doubled down as a country and focused on what does it take to support kids at the highest level from birth to seven, because those Uh are really, truly the formative years in all ways, which means supporting parents and supporting them, supporting schools and supporting them. Would we see a lessening of tendencies? Would we see a lessening of behaviors? Would we see, I mean... I think we're at a paradigm shift where it could swing that way or we could keep going on the path. And I think we're just going to see more and more and more. It's like the which came first, the chicken or the egg. There's no no right answer. What I do know is that, yeah, up until I, it's just so like up until seven, science has shown. That's why I keep going to that age. It's all, it's on us. Uh And then after that, even a lot of it is like we still... So if we had schools that functioned as they do, because some children do really well in that type of an environment, and we had schools that functioned differently, that happened completely outside, that happened with a looser curriculum, that happened with more optional participation in certain ways, would we see all kids thrive more? Like, would that have a positive impact on all children? Uh Yeah. We can only imagine, yes, it would. I mean, yeah, clearly, yeah. I wanted to ask one other question about ADHD because this term has come up and I don't think I have a really good sense of what it means. So I've, I've heard of masking and I wondered if you would speak to that and especially at the adult level, like what is masking and why, why are folks doing it? Yeah. I think the best example I can maybe give of masking is in a work environment. So masking is basically putting on a front or like pretending you're something that you're not. Pretending that something is more natural for you than maybe it is. A wonderful example, many of my clients work jobs as employees or as contractors and they bill by the hour, whether they're an attorney, whether they're a, so there's like, It's a great example though, hourly billing. They will report that they worked 40 hours to get X amount job done when actually they worked 80. They're getting paid for 40, but they're masking that they can get it done in 40 because if they didn't, they believe the employer would have thoughts about it. And a lot of it points back to their executive function. So like the value that they contribute, which is high, it's just not what we've been collectively trained to perceive and look for is different than what their employer maybe expects, which is uh, to be quick, Uh be fast. And so they mask and act like that's what they're doing. And they just end up taking, like taking the hit. They, I mean, when someone's working 80 hours and being paid for 40, Uh that's not sustainable. Right. That sounds super stressful. It is often super stressful for those people. And so that's just one example of masking. Masking can also be, um, I mean, to a more neurotypical linear thinker, masking might be called people pleasing, like pretending you like something that you actually don't in an attempt to appear more normal. Uh It's just, it happens more often in an attempt to appear more typical. And sometimes without realizing that they're doing it, it's, you know, well, I just know that this feels hard for me. So I'm going to try to mimic what it is that I see others doing. It seems to me like, I can imagine that, you know, my audience is a lot of moms that are either going through divorce or have gone through a divorce and now are co-parenting. 
And it seems like there would be a lot of pressure to show up, quote unquote, normal, right? Whether you're going through the divorce and you want to show up to court as, quote unquote, a normal parent, or whether you're trying to navigate co-parenting and you want to show up as normal there. Um, can can you give any examples or any, any thoughts on um, the challenge of doing that as a ADHD parent? Yeah, again, I think it plays into the systems, right? So like when you are conditioned to know how the systems operate, in this case, maybe the court system, right? Uh, of course, a parent is more likely to mask challenges that they have, knowing that the system might not be safe, might perceive any um, honest differences in a negative light. I think the same can be said for any system, right? I think it's why if there's a tendency that this bad thing might happen, I'm going to like show up in the best possible way, not necessarily fully myself because it doesn't feel safe to do so. I mean, I think, unfortunately, most recently, there's been that case with a mom who was like, I've done everything and the system just didn't support me. And she documented it all. And ultimately, you might have someone masking as normal and behind closed doors is treacherous. So I think it can, it can work both ways. The truth really is, do we want people masking or do we want people like coming from honesty and love? a lot of the systems are keeping people masking. Mm -hmm. and I think that can also be a really just dangerous way to do it. Yeah. It seems to me that there's also a uh, awareness factor to it, right? So if I'm aware that I'm doing this in order to show up in a certain way and that I'm kind of just playing the part essentially for this, but that I fully accept what my normal tendencies are, like my innate tendencies, how I like to operate. And for the rest of my life, like I can operate that way. Then there's kind of a piece of like, well, okay, I'm just showing up and I'm, I play the role for this one, one day or whatever. And there's like peace around it versus I have to show up that way every day. And I'm wrong for not automatically showing up that way. Yes. Yes. And that's so much of the mindset piece, right? Yeah. Can we accept who we are, how we are, not shame ourselves for where we may have some executive function challenges and yet maybe step into the role and play that role when we need to, because mm -hmm. that's the system that we're still currently living in. Mm -hmm. This has been so good, Sean. I've learned so much. I'm sure everybody has learned so much from you. Can you share maybe one last takeaway thinking of thinking of probably one of the moms that are listening right now and maybe she is hearing some things that are really resonating with her and and seem to land as possible um, tendencies that she has and curiosities that she might have about herself. Do you have one recommendation or one takeaway thought for her? today? Yes. I feel like it's just take one step, whether that is uh, moving towards an assessment to learn more, more about what could be going on, whether it's 
confiding, confiding in someone, booking a free consultation with someone and just talking about what's on your mind, whether it's going to a resource, I'm going to name two just because there are wonderful resources out there. So Chad, C-H-A-D-D.org is a wonderful resource for um, children with ADHD. Ton of articles, very reputable. Also ADD.org are both national and have so much information. Um, so I would just encourage you to take one step, get more information for yourself. There are so many people that are like struggling and keeping it to themselves in silence, afraid that if they take the first step, it's going to mean all these things. And it absolutely doesn't have to, but you can definitely bring in a little more peace for yourself just by starting the, on the path of exploring. Wonderful. And I know that you actually have a really nice 10 question quiz on your website. Will you talk about that for a second? I do. It's just kind of a fun little quirky quiz that uh, lets you know by answering 10 easy questions, whether or not you have ADHD tendencies, I'm doing air quotes, and how they're impacting you on a scale of one to 10, whether it's like shutting things down for you and you're really non-functioning or whether it's like, okay, there's some there and maybe here's some tips and strategies. And so uh, it's, you go to my website, revealedpath.com. At the top of it, there's a bar that says, take the quiz here and you'll get some information and a few tools and tricks you can use. Awesome. So good. So good. Y'all go follow Sean. Um, she has a beautiful website and um, you're on the socials as well, I believe. And I'll put all her links in our show notes. I really, really appreciate your time, Sean, and sharing so much of your knowledge and wisdom and insights into ADHD. And um, I really hope that it helps a lot of our listeners, either because of folks they have in their lives or their kids, or because of what might be underneath the surface for them. Um, and that there's less struggling out there. So thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you would like more support in your life post-divorce or around co-parenting or around dating after divorce, I encourage you to hop over to my website and check out the resources that I have there. I have a really awesome class called Fearless Co-Parenting that you can download. It's 45 minutes long and it is chuck full of tips and techniques and mindset work that you can apply to your co-parenting relationship today for things to start feeling easier. I also have a dating after divorce quiz. This will give you a chance to see, am I ready to start dating again? It's seven questions that you can easily answer in just a few minutes that will really pinpoint if you have everything aligned that you want to have aligned before you start dating. And finally, if you want one-on-one -on -one support, I have a summer special coaching package opportunity for you. It is six sessions of one-on-one -on -one private coaching support to help work on getting over your divorce, co-parenting struggles, or even dating after divorce. Hop on over to my website, meggluckman.com, and check out all those great resources. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>